I've told you this story, Nick, but I'll, I'll tell Levi because it's funny. Oh, I, I think I told you in that text about the uh, guy I met in Iowa from Tampico, which is yeah. like super beautiful place in Mexico. So I was in Iowa this week and, uh, you know, it was the caucus. So there was a bunch of, you know, right wing assholes in, in, in Iowa. And, and I was meeting with this Mexican guy who had flown up from Tampico and, you know, the right has this. They keep railing, they keep claiming that the, you know, there's, they're shipping illegal immigrants, which I say with disdain, um, around the country. And so this guy flew into this airport and some guy kind of heard him speaking Spanish to somebody and, and to one of the guys he was with and, uh, and said to him, you know, why don't you go back to where you came from? And the guy was like, I cannot wait to get out of this shithole and go home. <laughs> Which I just thought was like, I was like, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> that is very fucking good. Uh, who the hell wants to hang out in an airport in Wyoming in or Iowa. Iowa? Yeah. Or anywhere in that region. Like it's, not where anybody wants to be in the no. middle of fucking January. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like not at any point really, but like, especially right now in like the coldest weather we've had in a while. I'm sure there are beautiful parts of Iowa. Mm. Somewhere. Mm. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> there's probably beautiful people there, but I don't, <laughs> I don't know about the geography. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're isolating all 1,000 potential listeners we have in Iowa. (laughs) All right, so welcome to the Intervention Podcast. It's Nick here with Levi and Steve, and we're here to start another series, y'all. One that's been long anticipated, long in the works. But Stevie is going to begin the IRA series tonight. So Stevie, I won't bury the lead for you at all. Why don't you lead us in, buddy? Yeah, I mean, this is just going to be like an introduction, kind of a discussion about it. You know, we've teased this for a long time. I, yeah, I thought, so basically just, as I said, have like an initial discussion, kind of see where we are in terms of knowledge or preconceptions of the IRA and Ireland in general. Kind of, you know, I, I think my view will be different to yours, having grown up in England and then, and also living outside, you know, living in Europe. But I don't know, do you, do you want me to start or do you guys want to? Why don't you taint us with your uh, shitty royalist views to begin with? <laughs> I don't know if I have shitty royalist views. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what you're the one that said you think they're going to be different. So, I mean, I don't well, know. Yeah, what I mean, means. I think they're going to be just, just because I've had different influences. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. We've been over this a bunch of times on the podcast, but I was born in England, left when I was young, spent time in America, then the Netherlands, and then back in England. Especially, I, I mean, I guess I was a teenager in the Netherlands. I went to a British school there, but I had some Irish friends and especially one who was, you know, one of my best friends in Ireland. And then we ended up in, in Holland, he was Irish and we ended up going to university together as well. And he was very, you know, he would claim that his father had ties to the IRA, you know, whether that was true, I'll never know, but he was obviously very sympathetic. Is that like when you're in New York and you claim that you have family in the mafia or is it a little bit more serious? I think it's more serious. I mean, I, I'm not really sure. I don't, I don't know. Um, but, you know, the other side of this is, you know, pop culture. 
you know, I grew up watching In the Name of the Father and various different things. I also, uh, my first ever trip to Ireland, I landed in Belfast on the 15th of August, 1998. You guys know what happened that day? No idea. 15th of August, it was the Omar bombing. And we drove through Omar like slightly just, just before it happened. Um, total coincidence. Got to the hotel we were staying in with my family. I was a teenager at the time and, and saw that this bombing had happened. So again, you grow up, again, I had sympathetic friends, but I grew up in an, you know, especially when I was in the Netherlands, I was in a British school with predominantly English people and English friends. I've also said, you know, my family was socialist, especially, you know, my, my grandfather and my uncles, but they were still English. And, you know, as a socialist, I think as we get through this, go through this, and, and this is, again, going to be very kind of just, you know, this isn't going to be a very nuanced discussion. This is just kind of really general, really, and, and I'll just touch on things. But, you know, there's a lot of socialist ties um, with the IRA. And, you know, they are at times a socialist organization. At times they're not. They split on those at one point, one faction being far more left than the other. You know, Bobby Sands read Fanon. He read, you know, a lot of leftist literature. And again, so my family, socialists, you would hope they would be sympathetic. But my grandfather, like, went to his grave thinking that the Guilford Four, like, these were the Guilford Four. Was a, there was a bombing in Guilford, and these four guys got blamed and put in prison. They had nothing to do with it, and you know were completely railroaded by the British system, and were ended up getting released. And that was in the name of the Father. That film with Daniel Day Lewis plays Jerry Conlon, and that's that's what that's about. My f- grandfather like went to his grave saying, "You could he, claiming you could never convince him that they didn't have anything to do with it." He was just sure that these guys did this. So kind of fighting against that, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of Sunderland, as I've said, and we had a, a Northern Irish player called James McLean. And there's something on, you know, on November 11th in England, everyone wears poppies. That's not really something you do here, right? Yeah. Canada does it. It's like, on, it's on Remembrance Day. So it's, if you go to like Flanders, it, there's all these poppy flowers and it's in remembrance of all the people that died during the First World War. So Sunderland had this player called James McLean, and he would not wear a poppy. And it's tradition for even their uniforms, the, the kits, the football, soccer kits, soccer uniforms, they'll have like a poppy embroidered into it. And he wouldn't wear one because, you know, he was against the empire. And so that caused this big kind of uproar in Sunderland and in, in the Premier League in general. So, you, you know, you have that you have to fight against. You have, when I was in law school our professors were very open about the fact we, we had a whole section on abuses by the British legal system against the Irish, which was interesting. And I still, you know, you had kids that were like, you know, fuck the Irish, fuck the IRA. These people just belonged in prison. They're animals. So fighting against that and obviously always being left and having these Irish friends, I was hopefully a little, I was more sympathetic and have always been somewhat of a supporter. But then you get in, these big, you know, you get in a group and you get these group mentalities and nationalism, like we talked about on Lenin, which I'd probably, I don't know if this will come up before or after that, but there's a song in England, you know, whenever England play Ireland or you in these big groups or there's an Irish guy people want to make fun of. And it's like, no surrender, no surrender, no surrender to the IRA scum. 
And when I was at university in England, you know, the student union is the student bar. And I would assume at least once a week that was sung in the union. And again, so in England, this view of the IRA is very negative, obviously. Um, and just, you know, this sympathy for the empire continues. And I think, you know, this glorifying it, especially as it continues to decline and Ireland being the nearest and most probably successful in doing any type of um, retaliation against the empire is, is where, you know, a lot of ire in England is, is directed towards the Irish because of that. But again, I, I think I read a lot of Irish literature and read, you know, I've read some about Ireland, but that's kind of, so I was always pretty sympathetic to them. And I think as we continue with this, we all, people should hopefully will understand why we're sympathetic, but that's kind of my history with this. So a lot of different influences, but that's, you know, probably a little closer than maybe you guys had closer, you know, in the, in the mind at all the all, all times. But uh, anyway, go ahead. So I, I've said this on the podcast, like ad nauseum, but on my mom's side of the family, I do have Irish heritage. You know, it's a long way back, so I'm not going to make any pretensions about being part of like the Irish nation. If we're going to reference like the Lenin text, you know, I do have an affinity, I guess, for that aspect of my heritage just because of the history and my politics now. But that's a choice that I've made that I want to investigate more again on like a very personal level in terms of the IRA itself. It's one of those things where I always just had this nebulous idea that they were kind of positive, I think, which is kind of strange. I mean, I never really understood the politics growing up behind it. It was just kind of understood to be this good thing out there. And I think that's because, again, like probably that side of my family is Irish Catholic, right? And then you run into a lot of Irish Catholics in the Northeast and you would just see people with like IRA caps. I can remember like somebody that lived in my town, a girl that I was friends with, her dad had like an IRA hat, you know? And I don't think that this guy's politics were very good at all or anything like that. But again, it was like that identification with Irish nationalism in a sense, maybe without understanding the full implications of the organization that he was wearing as a billboard on his head. But I didn't have negative implications of it growing up at all. And I think obviously as we've grown politically, as I've grown politically, I've understood where that impetus came from and actually found like a, a notion that I had embedded in my own ideology from early on reinforced. And again, maybe by accident turned out to be a decent thing. Now, again, it's much more complicated than that because when you actually get into the history, Steve, as you alluded to, it's not that the IRA or Sinn Féin, wherever like a perfect ideological organization. But again, like nothing like that ever exists in the history of the world. You know, what I'm interested in is understanding and talking through the origins of the IRA and the specific material conditions which prompted their movements to move in different directions, right? I think at this point in time, we would look at the political arm of the IRA as Sinn Féin. And Sinn Féin has adopted electoralism in a lot of sense. Like they've, you know, the main body of the IRA has renounced armed struggle, 
Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, that's just a truism. And I think it's an interesting conversation to talk about Ireland as being in many ways, the first colony of Britain of Europe, right? The first test case. I mean, this goes back to like 800 AD. If you really want to go all the way back in terms of the first yeah. incursions into it. So there's a long history here. There's a long history of colonization, but at some level they have been integrated into the European Union. They've been granted the title of whiteness. And there's some segments of their society that embrace that and embrace the neoliberal order. And there's some segments that hold on to this idea of, hey, we identify with the oppressed, especially when it comes to the Palestinian struggle. And I don't even think that those positions are necessarily distinct at all points in time. They probably like there's probably people that like like the fact that like they associate with the oppressed, but also like the benefit they're the perceived benefits of being part of the European Union. So, again, nothing's ever simple, but I'm interested to talk through some of that history and the changes throughout. Yeah, just to touch on what you said, I mean, that that is definitely a a a view in England that America has always Americans have supported the IRA. Um, and it's always been kind of, you know, the, the English have been bitter about that. You know, I remember the first time my uncle came to the U.S. And again, he's a socialist, but he wouldn't go to McDonald's because he claimed that they gave money to the IRA. <laughs> and, you know, so again, things like that, when, when nationalism conflicts with your, pol- your, your politics. And it was always viewed like America's always railing against terrorists, and yet they support the IRA, who... The English view as terrorists. So it was this, you know, that was, you know, the, the special friendship or the special relationship between the two countries was maybe a little strained in some view, in some people's eyes because of that. That's really interesting. So uh, for me, I am more or less the outsider on this issue. I don't really have a specific connection to this either by blood or by just deep general personal interest in Ireland. It's never been something forefront on my mind, uh, but I guess I could break it down into a few different ways. So there, I do have a, a personal connection as much as that matters. On my mother's side, we think that my grandmother may have been part Irish. Uh, she was an orphan, so we just don't know. But we're pretty sure it's either Irish, Scottish, Welsh, or some combination there. And they never said English. For some reason, they were willing to rule that out. They were one of the good ones. <laughs> yes. And on my father's side, I've mentioned this into the chat before, and I only recently sort of confirmed this, but there was always this story of a great, great, however many, grandmother that came from Ireland after being expelled from Spain as a Sephardi Jew. And I'd always just sort of passed it off as that, that's a, that doesn't make any sense, or maybe it's unconfirmable or, you know, just family lore. Uh, but doing like quick research, I guess that was a real thing. There are people, Jewish communities in Southern Ireland that were from the being expelled in Portugal and Spain uh, during the Inquisitions. So I guess that's possible. But I guess to Nick's point, that makes my relationship to Ireland even more strained because I don't have the Irish blood. It's just my people fled there and then moved to America. So what the hell does that mean in terms of them as a people or nation? Because, I mean, Spain, Spanish didn't consider them to be Spain or Spanish. So did Ireland consider them to be Irish? I have no idea how that relationship works. Uh, second is just sort of the explicitly 
Jewish Hasbara angle. And this one was kind of like, I had to dig into my memories, but I do kind of remember this. And even you talking about the 1998 terrorist attack kind of brought that to the forefront of my mind because I don't remember what order this happened in. But my father was trying to tell me or talk about Irish politics and the concept of terrorism. And he was very pro IRA, saying that what they were doing and sort of enforcing their right to be a nation is something that he associated with the state of Israel, that they use terrorism against the British in order to exert themselves as a state. And then that conflicted directly with the Hasbara that I was learning in Hebrew school which associated the terrorists of Ireland with Palestine and saying that they were actively against civilization in the same way that the Palestinian terrorists were, which was something I, I just I didn't think very hard about until the last, you know, going into this series, that there must have been some sort of difference in time that maybe Ireland was more supportive of the Israeli position. I could completely imagine that being true, especially with Israel being anti-British early on. And then that sort of transitioning at some point to where my Hebrew school teacher would try to teach us that you cannot side with these IRA terrorists, that they're scum of some sort. The third is more or less like I used to be a English major and I did a whole series or work on James Joyce, which is not the same period, uh, but he was wrestling very heavily with the concept of Irish nationalism. I think it's in the pre-IRA era, but that's the little that I know about the creation of the state of Ireland is through the lens of James Joyce and the sort of arguments he was making against the concept of nationalism as it ended up evolving with the parliamentary system that he more or less was against and self-exiled from Ireland uh, in conflict with the way those politics were unfolding. And then the sort of last connection that I have to Ireland is just the local current, the international current politics. So everything to do with Palestine. I mean, Ireland's been the sort of voice of reason within Europe, or at least the voice of reason in Europe that's speaking English. So it's really easy for them to be picked up by American or English yes. news sources that I listen to. And I listen to a podcast called Cornish Spati that does a lot of work on Ireland off and on. Uh, so I've heard, I think, one or two brief histories of the communist movement within Ireland. But I also understand that a lot of the time those sort of communist movements are not reflective of the whole history of Ireland. And I know so little about that base history that I was actually kind of lost uh, in that overview of the communist position because I don't know all of the mainstream positions or even the IRA positions. And that's more or less encapsulates everything I know about Ireland. I got some readings that Steve has actually suggested I do uh, that I've been negligent on that I really should get, at least to get the basis going through this. Yeah, I mean, the, the relationship with Israel is interesting. And again, as we go through more in-depth histories, I'm sure we'll touch more on it. I mean, I, I've, I've got an article that we, if we have time, we'll read at the end about their support of Palestine now. But you know, if you go back to just after the mandate, um, the Northern Irish, the IRA, you know, were supportive of the Israeli people because they were fighting against the British. Mm. And they, and, you know, but that has obviously changed. You know, I think 
Levi, we touched on it when we did that. Um, what about football? Mm-hmm. You know, you have, you have Irish football teams that are wearing Palestinian colors. It's not just recently. It's, it's been going on for years where the Irish have been, you know, in solidarity with the Palestinians. And then to touch on something Nick said, yeah, I mean, the, the difficult thing with this series is going to be how far back do we go? Do we focus on the IRA? Because, I mean, the foundations of the IRA, you know, the founding people, the people that were, you know, executed after the Easter uprising and other things, you know, they have ties to leaders, you know, Irish nationalist leaders far before that. We did the Taste of Empire on the Ulster Plantation. Um, so we've touched a little bit on that. You could go back, yeah, like as Nick said, to you know as, as far back as you wanted to and and dig things out on this. So we're going to somehow have to try and figure out what our scope is here. I mean, I think it would be interesting in the same way that Levi kind of wrapped, if we could possibly do this and replicate it, 2,000 years of history or 1,000 years of history in an episode or two, just to lay some foundational framework. Yeah. Just because, again, like, that Ulster plantation, I think, is a pivotal moment or a pivotal formation to understand. Because I was listening to the Trillbillies, and I don't want to make this an original thought because it's not, but just like looking at things intentionally through the lens of settler colonialism and what that's wrought. And I think that's what we've really been doing with Palestine, Zionism, and empire. And I think we could really especially if we're looking to draw threads of solidarity and through lines to the Palestine struggle, I really do think we could look at this as a case of settler colonialism. Yeah. That persists to this day with the fixture of British rule in Northern Ireland. But again, and we talked about this on that, what's that series? Empire, the food empire thing. Fuck. Oh, Taste (laughs) Taste of Empire. Empire. Taste of Empire, (laughs) Jesus Christ. It's a lot to keep track of. Which we've abandoned somewhat. <laughs> but yeah, we'll get back to it at some point. Well, there was a very got, problematic chapter on Africa. So we kind of yeah, thought. Yeah, we just said, oh, let's, not, let's not tackle that right now <laughs> in the midst of all these like struggles in the Sahel right now. Um, but that was way back before all this shit popped off in Palestine and we've doubled down on that. But in that, we talked about how English aggression in Scotland essentially created what would become kind of the tip of the spear for settler colonialism within what's now known as Ulster in Ireland, right? Because the Scots became these settlers, right? So again, I mean, I do think we need to establish some kind of baseline as far back as we can reasonably go, even if we do it at the very highest level. I'm not interested in getting into talking about all of the ancient Irish medieval kings and how they worked or didn't work with, you know, the British royals at that time. But just, again, the broad strokes of that history in an episode or two, I think are important because it, it, that is that history is inseparable from the IRA. Mm. Yeah, no, no question. The other point I wanted to make, and this is a little bit separate from what I just said, in talking about the solidarity with Palestine that I think you may not see at all levels of the government, I think you do see it much more within like what we would call maybe like the rank and file of the Dale, not categorically so but much more than we would see in like the Senate or the House of Representatives here in that solidarity with Palestine is because, again, like in my experience going to Ireland, I've been there twice. I love it there. If I have to go anywhere or even if I don't have to go anywhere, I would like to be there because it's fucking amazing and the people are awesome. But I've always gone out of my way 
to talk to people about history and politics. And like people there have been very open and interested to tell me their stories and talk to me about this kind of stuff. And I've said this on a previous episode before, but it is astounding, like how top of mind and how relevant this history is for a lot of people there. Again, I've told this story before, but me and my wife did like a little horseback tour on like the Bay of Dingle thing. It was beautiful. But just talking to this younger girl, like she was probably like, I don't know, 22 or something like that. And she's talking about fucking Cromwell and the potato famine and the impact of the British and like how, yeah, relations are good. But like, we still know what the history was. We still understand that that guy is still a war criminal to us. So it's still offensive that we see his statue up in front of, um, you know, the parliament building or whatever it is. I don't know the exact name, Steve. I'm sorry, but like it's top of mind. And again, people are talking about relations with the North and the South. So it's it's this persistent issue that is still unresolved. And like the book I have for a good basis on this part of the title is that it is an unfinished revolution against the British. Like what the IRA started remains unfinished because they still (laughs) occupy Ireland and people know that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is timely in the sense of the ties with Palestine, but also, I mean, it's been a few years now, but but following Brexit, following the electoral wins of Sinn Féin, you know, Ireland's probably slowly approaching or, or getting closer to a unified Ireland than it's been for generations, mm-hmm. which is obviously a good thing. And I guess what would be interesting is that, you know, we're here saying that that the IRA renounced the armed struggle and adopted fully electoral politics. But if the goal is to unify Ireland, does that strategy ultimately win out? Mm. I, I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a unique case. And I, I, I don't know if that's going to be true, but you could see the dynamics of it. As you said, Steve, I mean, again, just talking to somebody over there, they're like, at some level, it's just a matter of demographics. Like, more people are, are, it's kind of crude, but she was like, those Catholics, we just keep having kids and the Protestants, they're not just not having them. Eventually we're going to, we're going to take back over. I mean, the, the interesting thing on this, on the secular lines with Brexit is, you know, even the Protestants or the unionists voted to stay in Europe. Mm. And so that's something that could even lead to maybe them voting for a unified Ireland, which, you know, we'll get more into that as we go along. But, um, any other general points before I do like, I'll do kind of a, just a really brief overview of just important dates in the IRA's history. And then again, this won't include the precursor and the settler colonialism, which we will do episodes on, which I'm, I assume will be our first episode on this, but um, just kind of from 1916 onwards, do you guys have anything else before I just do that quickly? I guess... I just have a question about sort of framing this in the terms of mm-hmm. settler colonialism. Does the language of indigeneity come up with the people on the island of Ireland? That seems to be essential in discussions of settler colonialism. But I've never heard anybody talk about being an indigenous Irelander. Go ahead, Steve. I was going to say, it gets difficult, right? Because I would assume the majority of indigenous Irish are Catholic. Hmm. The people, I mean, I don't know this for, for sure, but I, I assume that most of the Unionists and most of the Protestants are 
settlers that went over and just have roots there back from however many centuries that was. Again, I don't know that for sure. And I assume it's something we'll parse out as we go through this. But uh, what were you going to say, Nick? No, I mean, it, it does get extremely complicated. Um, yeah. Because it, it's hard to say that like there's like an original Gaelic or Celtic nation and like, or it's completely eradicated at this point, just because there have been so many incursions onto the Island from Scandinavia, from the British, from the Franks, you know what I mean? Like there it's, it's, it's very tough to say. So indigeneity gets extremely complicated at that point. Mm. Um, I think it has more to do with like a national identification in terms of, Hey, like there's this, Irish race, whatever that may look like, that is identifying as being part of this island, part of this culture that is resisting outside occupation. So again, it may not be perfectly perfect analogy there, but I do think there's something to discuss through that lens. Yeah. And maybe that's just been sort of modeled over history since the Republic of Ireland has existed and exerted itself as a force on the world stage that maybe we will find these discussions of indigeneity, free republic period. Um, Just speaking broadly, I don't know, would that be something that we would recognize when the British were trying to exert control over the entirety of the Ireland and it has since faded or was it never really part of the discourse? I'm just interested on how that works, especially since... The Irish position in the United States has been to assimilate themselves and make whiteness based on a specific antagonism against black and native populations. Just to add another layer of complication on top of this, that they would be pro-Irish Republic potentially, but their behavior in the United States has really been one of settler. Right. And I don't know that that behavior or those attitudes would mirror what people that are actually living in Ireland would feel. Right. And I'm sure there's some of that. There's no doubt racism. Right. And like I said, they have imbibed and been adopted into whiteness on like, again, the European Union scale, even if we look at it at a very contemporary level. But there is still that identification with the press. And that's that's the dialectic i guess that's kind of interesting to me yeah i mean just going on the race thing i mean i remember there was a an irish footballer named phil babb who played for liverpool and he played for sunderland and he was black and it was like a joke that Mm. this black guy played for ireland and you get that in europe right there was a guy henrik larsen played for sweden and he was black and it used to be like oh how this he's not really swedish and just you know stupid racist comments like that okay so to just do like a, a really touch on some years and some events and also this is going to kind of show how difficult this might be just because of the numerous splits that the IRA has gone through over the years so again this isn't exhaustive this is just really general if anybody has points for us of what we should look at and where we're wrong you know please let us know in 1916 you had the Easter Rising 1917, the IRA forms. 1919, you have the Anglo-Irish War. 1922, 
you have the Irish Free State split nation, the IRA split from the people that wanted to kind of agreed with the British, and, and that caused the Irish Civil War. And then in 1923, the Pro Treaty won, which basically meant that there was Ireland and Northern Ireland, and, there, and the Pro Treaty guys beat the IRA. So following this, the IRA kind of went underground and became more pro-Soviet in a way to get arms and support. East. And then you have kind of this break. Well, you don't have a break, but then the next kind of highlight I have is 1960s is kind of what is generally called the Troubles. So the Protestants and the British cracked down on the Catholics. I think there were like limited access to housing. This is in Northern Ireland, limited access to housing um, and just a lot of kind of prejudice against the Catholics. And so the IRA were seen as the obvious protectors of the Catholics. I want to focus on how fucking fascist and oppressive the government of Northern Ireland was after independence, basically through, I think, the 60s and 70s. Like, it was a rough government, like yeah. really bad, very oppressive. Are there any, like, specific events that are considered hallmarks of that oppression? I can't remember the name of the the massacre, but there was a basically was like bloody a bloody Sunday. There was yeah. well, there was a bloody Sunday then. Yeah, there was yeah. There was a specific march that I'm trying to remember, but it was again, it was like a civil rights kind of march and just got drowned in complete bloodshed. Mm. Yeah. Well, this is when the British were sending more troops. You know, obviously, I think after the Second World War was when the, or was after the First World War. I forget, I forget off the top of my head. But when they sent the Black and Tans, which were basically like England emptied out. They got like old, they got soldiers and emptied out prisons and just sent the most vicious people, which is just a, you know, hallmark of British imperialism to Ireland to just, you know, torture these people, basically. All right. So... In 1969, there's a political divide within the IRA. So you have the real IRA, which are identifies former Marxist, and then you have a split, and then you have the provisional IRA or the provost. So then the provosts become larger and more militaristic in 72, and then in 86, the provost split, and then you have a new party, a new group called the Continuity IRA, which were, I believe, focused more on the political realm. In 94, the provosts agree a ceasefire. And then in 96, this breaks down. In 97, you have the Good Friday Agreement. The Continuity IRA and the newly formed Real IRA don't accept this. And I believe it was the Real IRA that carried out the Omar bombing in 98. Hmm. So then in 05, the IRA's given up most of their arms. And then in 2012, you have the formation of the new IRA. <laughs> So we're going to have to, as we go through this, parse out all these different uh, groups. Yeah, it's really interesting just going down that line, how many iterations of the name Irish Republic Army has been appropriated by various groups. So that just immediately makes me think of how much continuity there really is between many of these organizations. Or are they really hearkening back to a founding organization, whatever might be considered the original IRA? Was that something unique in of itself that these other groups are sort of echoing? Or are there literal people that are in all of these organizations from beginning to end? Or their families are, or they take specific individuals as part of their lineage? 
that's always the big question when a name sticks around. It happens in the United States with left organizations like the Students for Democratic Society, SDS. I think that there's, I think we're on the fourth iteration of the new SDS at the moment, which has absolutely no connection to the original SDS, except that they are attempting to claim that legitimacy just by using that name. Kind of like the fourth international. Yes, that's an even better example. <laughs> but I mean, you see it all the time. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just using that name. No, that would be interesting to figure out like where those splits are. The other thing, Steve, as we're going through this timeline that I think will be interesting to discuss is obviously we want to center the Irish struggle here, but it'd be interesting to do kind of like a timeline episode of Britain's relationship to Northern Ireland. Because there are points in this history where it almost like, like you have to ask the question. It's like, even from a material perspective, why is Britain holding on to this? What does this grant to them? Is it just about like the name of keeping the United Kingdom in place? Because there's points in this history where the British like don't want anything to do with it anymore, but it's actually the unionists in Northern Ireland that are pushing even harder to maintain the union than what the folks on Downing street would have been pushing for at a given moment. Mm. And I think that's also a really interesting aspect of this, because again, like what material benefit do, do they get from holding on to this like little sliver of Northern Ireland, which as far as I'm aware, I mean, yeah, there's ports and everything, but it's not like it's a rich area in natural resources, maybe offshore stuff. I think it's a conversation that gets into like, what is the British empire a little bit? What is the United Kingdom? Yeah. And does it transcend? Does does this idea of holding on to Northern Ireland almost like transcend material considerations and political considerations at all moments and become more of like an ideological prestige kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, you know, I've mentioned my father a few times on this and he, you know, his improving politics, I guess. So, you know, when I was, when I was a kid, you know, he was against the IRA and all the, and he, he, but he would make comments like unionists in Northern Ireland are more British than I am mm. and more pro Britain than I am. Like, and, and this, this is a guy that was pretty pro Britain at the time. Now he's like, you know, unify Ireland and free Palestine. <laughs> so he's, he's totally changed his politics, but, uh, but yeah, he would definitely make that comment. You kind of hinted on it. You know, I, I think there's times when the unionists would feel completely abandoned if they if Britain had allowed Irish unification. And again, you know, I know a little bit about this stuff, but I'm going to be learning as much as everybody else as we go through this. I think. And again, the like my perspective comes from reading on this, but also from just a comment that was thrown out to me by like this middle-aged woman who lived close to kind of the border between Northern and Southern Ireland. I'm putting that in scare quotes because it sounds so weird to even like put this border, like that there's like a line drawn through these counties and we should talk about how those county lines were drawn because it was based on census data in terms of who was Protestant and who was Catholic and how they could ensure a majority within that region, you know, but she just made kind of this comment to me and it was just like, kind of like that simple working class kind of perspective. It's like, Hey, these lads are more trouble than they're worth, you know, like, let's just give them back. We'll give them back. But like, they want to stay part of it, you know, like, (laughs) so there's something to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess a a last comment of curiosity is mentioning the sort of 
relationship between Ireland and the post-World War II decolonial period. So it's kind of silly, but I almost wonder, does Ireland participate in things like the Commonwealth Games or have they really taken a separatist position? Because even, I believe, India participates in the Commonwealth concept and they were no friends of Great Britain through the end. But what's Ireland's position in terms of their relationship with Great Britain on any level and the relationship to other decolonized locations? I'm not sure on the Commonwealth Games. The only things I know is, you know, Ireland is independent in the Olympics. They have their Mm -hmm. own team. But every four years, the Lions, which is the, they're called the British and Irish Lions. So they're a rugby team made up of Great Britain and Ireland. And they go and they tour South Africa or New Zealand or Australia. Every four years, they go to one of the Southern Hemisphere teams to play a series, Southern Hemisphere countries to play a series. And that's the only time that I know of that they unify as a team um, mm. and as a group. And that, that's in rugby. And, and I think rugby is an interesting thing where I, I think those guys probably, rugby players, is, as rough as they're supposed to be, tend to like each other more than most other athletes. <laughs> the gentleman sports, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> I have these little kind of just real summaries of, of all the iterations. I mean, do you want to go through that or do you think it will be better served doing that as we do the actual series? What's your thoughts? Probably be better. I, I mean, I don't know the whole content of them, but it might be better to think of framing it on like the larger... Yeah, I think, we can get in, I think we can get into this later. So some of the other things I want to kind of do on this series is um, obviously go into all the stuff, you know, we, we've mentioned so far. But also, you know, it, I think it is important to focus on certain people at times and highlight the struggles they went through um, and, and their, their part in, you know, the bigger picture. And, and also some events, you know, I, I'd like to do an episode because I went to law school on you know, abuses of the, of the British uh, legal system on the Irish at one point. I think it's impossible to do this without focusing at least one point on the uh, hunger strikes in the prisons. Um, We we have to go through that, but I just kind of jotted down names that I just were off the top of my head, names that I associated with the IRA, Ireland, this whole struggle. And some of these are unionists, some of them aren't, but you guys can throw names out as well, but just, you know, off the top of my head, like Bobby Sands, David Trimble, Jerry Adams, the Birmingham Six, Michael Collins, Eamon De Valera, Jerry Conlon and the Guilford Four, Martin McGuinness, Ian Paisley. You know, those off the top of my head were just names that always stick out to me when I think about this. Are there any that you guys have? Steve, what was that book you gave me a while ago and those two gals that got, uh, that were... Say Nothing? Yeah, Say Nothing. Um, who are the women in that? Cause I think that would be interesting to talk about. Cause they, they were pretty prominent within the movement as at least like activists and cadre. Yeah. I mean, I have a book that I, I will read as we, I mean, I have like, I don't know how many books on this topic that I'm going to have to fight through to get on the, while we do this, but I have a book on the, like the women in the IRA and their position, but I forget those two names. Um, dollars price and yeah. And Dolores. Brendan, yeah. And then, uh, Brennan Hughes another one but yeah i mean absolutely should focus on some of these people and i think like to the point about like 
talking about how the IRA transitioned through the years, talking about these people as embodiments of different currents within the movement and what they represented or different events that they're associated with and the movements that they were or the, the politics that they were trying to embody or actions they were trying to carry out through those specific actions, I think that's going to be the most effective way for us to talk about these things. As we've tried to convey time and time again through this podcast as like these leaders, these figures as embodiments of popular movements, representations of a broader sentiment within the masses or within the segment of the masses, a segment of the movement. Yeah. And I mean, the relationship between like Collins and De Valera and the split that happened with those two is, is, you know, a key point in, in this whole thing. So that, that's an interesting thing to talk about those two and both being, you know, such prominent figures early on. And then what happened with, with Michael Collins and then, you know, De Valera kind of going the more political route at at some point. So that's, you know, there's so many different things we can talk about and like interesting aspects of this. It, it, I think it's going to be, it's going to be a lot, but it's going to be pretty fun to do. No, I'm super excited about this. And like Jerry Adams is another figure that's, if you looked at like what the IRA and Sinn Féin transition, what that looked like, Jerry Adams is a, fo- is a figure I think you could kind of structure a narrative around that development. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and I haven't mentioned Sinn Féin much, but that's going to be something that we'll obviously spend a lot of time on as well. Yeah. I mean, he's not a member of this movement, but the only person I could name that has any relationship to Ireland in this period, or even near this period, I guess when Vladimir Lenin was living in London, he learned English from an Irishman, and he was known to always speak English with an Irish accent. It must have had some interaction with that movement, because he always held a sympathy towards that movement, for obvious reasons, for the rest of his life. Well, I know that... Lenin looked at Marx and Engels' discourse and exchanges on the Irish question as a foundation for how he looked at nationalism. And now, obviously, we need to take into consideration the caveats that we threw out there that, again, this presents a very Eurocentric framing of Mm -hmm. the national question at the time. But, like, again, like the situation in Ireland, going back to my point about how far back this went as Britain's first empire, right? And, like, in a lot of ways, like the breeding ground, the testing grounds for this idea of plantation and colonization, settler colonialism, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it does have an important role to play in understanding even like what the world system of British imperialism wrought. Mm-hmm. You know, and the, and the other thing with Ireland is the culture that comes out of Ireland. Levi, you mentioned James Joyce. I think there's a rich history of poetry and literature that's come out of Ireland, music, and also film. And I think that, you know, we've talked to Evan at Left of the Projector, and I think we'll tie in some films with this series as well. I mentioned, you know, there's In the Name of the Father, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, Hunger. There's a lot of films that that tie into this that, you know, as a break from the reading will, will be interesting things to review as well. There a Stanley Kubrick movie as well on Ireland, Barry Lyndon. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one. Isn't hasn't Evan mentioned that as well? 
I know it's a, it's it's one that gets mentioned a lot in general. Yeah, one of those behemoths of a movie that's crazy long. Yeah, so there's there's lots of different things we can touch on in this in this series, and I, again, I'm sure we'll have fun doing it. Oh, definitely. We also got our our big man in the office himself claims to support the IRA. Joe Biden always makes those comments. Just does he support them as much as he does Israel? We'll see. <laughs> I got to talk about um, Claire Daly and Mick Wallace, who are European members of parliament from Ireland. And Claire Daly talking about Biden called him Butcher Biden and said, <laughs> to get our nation's name out of your mouth, we reject you. We reject you. <laughs> so that was fucking cool. Like, I just, God, I wish I had a, we had a politician like her. I mean, again, I'm not all into electoralism or anything like that, but like, again, when we're talking about what can like left people do in terms of expressing ideas on a stage like that, like that's something I would say, hell yeah, I'm going to get behind this person. And that's something that we could speak to a little bit better. At least I can. The idea of Ireland is usually the English-speaking voice of reason coming out of Europe on a lot of the issues of decolonialism, especially in the conflict of Palestine and Israel. I don't know that they were the first nation, but I know they were among the first nations to call for whatever that was called, the humanitarian pause. And as much of a half measure as that was, I think they still remain one of the only Western European countries that supports an end to the war. I may be speaking out of line here, but I'm pretty sure that's still the case. Yeah. And I don't want to, our perspective on Ireland as positive as it is to overshadow the much better rhetoric that's coming out of the global South. Right. But right. they are to your point, Levi, and this is, I feel this as well. They are a beacon within the Western European or the West, they're a beacon of light and humanity, at least some aspects of their society and some segments of their politics. Because again, there are, like, they have not signed on to the ICJ case. Mm. And there's people within, again, the Dale, which is their, their equivalent of their Congress calling for that. But their president, Viradkar, I think has misled one of the, one of the MPs, one of the more radical MPs said that like, they were misled by the Taoiseach that who is like, again, a pr- president or prime minister or whatever. I, I don't know exactly how it works, that they couldn't support this. But in fact, they could. So there are neoliberal segments within that society. Like Google, like they are a they are a haven for tech. Like Dublin mm-hmm. is a tech haven. Google yeah. has a presence there. Microsoft has a presence there. Apple has a presence in Cork. You know what I mean? So like. This is not like they are not without their problems. What I'm interested in is talking about. Well, I'm interested in that aspect of it for sure. But there is a segment of the masses there, a strong segment of the masses there that actually finds purchase within the representative institutions there to express ideas of solidarity with the global south, to express ideas of solidarity with decolonial struggles. And those things are intention. Absolutely. I think it's going to be interesting to sort of see the different strands of radicalism within the Irish public and how it developed. Because it's never as simple as a linear ideological argument. You know, there's 
constant contingencies, things that could have happened or happened because of movements or it's always way more sophisticated than being against eating at McDonald's because they support terrorism. You know, (laughs) that to me is just an utterly wild thing to claim. Um, But it comes from somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And like what ideological capitulations or compromises do you make for the advancement of the Irish nationalist struggle? Mm hmm. Yeah, there had to be compromises that occurred. Yeah, if you're telling on, the, me at on some, the political stage. Yeah, sorry, but yeah. Right, even if you're saying at some point one of the IRAs, uh, I don't remember which one, got support from the Soviet embassy or the Soviet state. I mean, at what point did that get stretched or get dropped in order to get greater respectability with the maybe the English cause or another Western European ally that also had anti-British sentiments that was struggling uh, for different reasons, but for the same cause of the Irish Republic. These things cause strange bedfellows. I mean, we're looking at that with the Palestinian case entirely. We're not 100% behind every Palestinian cause, but we understand it as necessary for this material condition, that these compromises have to be made in order to get to something more sustainable, uh, more accepting of humanity. Yeah. No, I mean, to really put a fine point on it, if Saudi Arabia went in and like took a firmer stance on this with no conditions or no ulterior motives, which isn't going to happen, but if they did, I would say good. And I harbor no love for that regime, that, you know, theocracy. Yeah. That and I wonder what Kissinger's position was on a free Ireland. Maybe we'll find out. I'm sure it'll come. I'm sure he'll come up at some point. Well, Steve, I think we should save your article for a separate article yeah, entry series that I, we're, I think that was that a good, we've been doing. It was a good discussion. Good um, introduction to this. As as I said, it was very kind of just a big summary and no details. And if anybody has anything that they want us to look at or highlight, you know, please let us know. And if anyone wants to come on and, and talk about this with us, especially we would like to have some Irish representation, that would be great as well. So if anyone's interested, please let us know. And no, we've got enough with my 33% Irish, like <laughs> five generations removed. I think we're good. No, I'm just fucking around. <laughs> and, and, and Levi's, what? <laughs> Maybe. Very distant answer. The apocryphal like voyage of the Sephardic Jew. Right? <laughs> People no. that got out of there as soon as they could. Yeah. I was going to say, like, I was going to say the same thing, Steve. I was going to say shoot us an email, but actually just message me on Instagram. Like, I'm actually pretty active on that. I'll respond pretty quickly. So that would be cool. Um, I know we have a few Irish comrades already that we could probably get on thinking about how we tie this in and work with our friends over at the, uh, bring out your dead podcast who are focusing on Latin America, but there's a couple things that I'm thinking to get them in on, but yeah, it would also be interesting. Hey, if you're like a black Irish person, come on and talk to us, tell us about your experience socially. That would be fucking, that would be a really interesting episode. I think definitely. Well, yeah. Cool. <laughs> Did you have something, buddy? Sorry. No, just, I think that there's lots of great voices representing Ireland out there that 
Maybe they could lend their voice a little bit to us just for a minute. Yeah. Like I said, as a, as a white dude in this fucking shit world, like at least I can be somewhat proud of the voices coming out of Ireland. (laughs) On that note, I think we'll leave it there. So thanks for listening to the intervention. I think this is going to be a fun series. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the connections we can draw to all the work we've done in the past. Um, so thanks Steve for starting this. We'll get back at it soon. I mean, I, I can't tell you what the mix of episodes upcoming is going to be. It's probably going to be a mix of this Palestine Zionism and empire, some theoretical stuff and also some slops. So stick with us. It's going to be fun. Go on, leave us reviews. We need again, we need more five-star reviews on Spotify. We're not doing very well on Spotify. We're not doing very good folks. We got to get those numbers up, but, um, yeah, keep at that. But more importantly than anything, and you're probably all tired of hearing me say this, but get your ass out and get organized. That's more important than anything. The Palestine solidarity movement needs you. The fight against imperialism in the future needs your voice, needs your body out in the streets. With that said, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you all next time. Thank you. Adios, paisanos. Adios.